This evening I would like to speak about the the ground of wisdom. The meditation practice, this retreat and these teachings that we're engaged with are essentially concerned with the cultivation of, of wisdom and of compassion that flows from wisdom. And it's useful to just acknowledge that wisdom is essentially born of a desire or the seeking for wisdom, the seeking to develop wisdom is essentially born of a desire to free ourselves from suffering, from a a sense of unsatisfactoriness or limitation in life. And in fact the seeking of wisdom is therefore an expression of compassion. And wisdom is in fact that of that which when we understand it leads to the end of suffering, leads to the end of unsatisfactoriness, of separation, of conflict and of a sense of being disconnected. So in the development of wisdom and the exploration or the seeking of wisdom there are many different aspects to explore. And I'd like to speak this evening about what are the foundations, the ground of wisdom, the places we begin or that we need to begin. And the first place that perhaps we need to begin if we're interested in addressing and resolving suffering in our life and in the world, is we need to recognize the significance of actions, the actions that we make of body, of speech and of mind. Because actions have results, actions bring about consequences inevitably. It is very important that we understand this rather simple statement. This is the law of karma, of karma, or karma, depending on which particular Buddhist language one happens to be speaking in. The uh, modern Western language has adopted the Sanskrit word karma. In this tradition we sometimes speak of karma, as it is referred to also in the, uh, in the chanting that we're doing in the evening. And karma means actions. Actions produce results, which is called the fruit of karma. And to believe that actions do not produce results is one of the few views that the Buddha said in very categoric terms you should reject this view or perhaps more accurately he said of very few views that you should adopt them wholeheartedly but the view that actions produce results he said you should adopt this wholeheartedly. You need to understand this. The whole of ethics is based on recognizing that actions lead to results. Understanding that harming of others leads to suffering for ourselves. That caring for others leads to well-being for ourselves. This simple recognition is the basis of what could be called enlightened selfishness whereby we understand that in caring for others we care for ourselves and in undermining or disregarding others we undermine and disregard our own well-being. To understand that every action, every word, 
every deed that we consciously and intentionally undertake is like a stone thrown in a pond. It creates ripples. And the ripples flow out from where the stone has landed to the edge of the pond and then back and return. And the nature of the result that comes from our actions is not random. It is precisely related to the motivation from which we act. It has the same flavour, the same character as the motivation from which we act. And essentially when we act from a place of craving or greed, from a place of anger or hatred, or from a place of cruelty and wishing to bring about harm, the results that come from these actions are painful to us, cause us pain, cause us suffering, equally as they cause suffering to those upon whom such actions are inflicted. And actions that are born of non-greed, of non-cruelty, of non-hatred, actions that are born of generosity, of kindness and compassion, which are the qualities opposed to greed, to hatred and to cruelty. Actions born of these qualities bring about pleasant results, bring about happiness and well-being in our life. If we look, we can see. If we explore and reflect on our life, we can see that the seeds which are the actions and the fruit which are their results are the same. We can think of times when we've been kind and friendly, generous, caring, and how good that actually makes us feel. It doesn't always mean we get a material advantage, of course, but that's not what we're measuring here. We're measuring the quality of our heart's condition, its well-being, its ease. And of course, greediness might get us more things, but does it actually bring us peace? <coughs> Anger might succeed in defending us from something we don't like, but does it bring us ease and well-being or agitation? It is said that if you plant the seed of a crab apple, the tree that grows from that seed will produce bitter fruit. How could it be other than that? It could not produce sweet fruit. And if you plant the seed of a cherry, the tree that is born of that seed will produce sweet fruit. How could it produce other? You cannot plant the seed of a crab apple and expect it to give rise to a cherry tree. Nor can you plant the seed of a cherry and have anything other than trust that at some time in some way the fruit that this bears will be sweet. This is the nature of action. Action is born of action that is born of intentions. The motivations that move us to act are so important. And if we don't understand this, we so often wonder how it is that we find ourselves in these difficult situations. Not that we can always understand the relationships and the connections between our actions and the results. This is incredibly complex and many different features interact with each other in order to produce the results that come. It's not that one particular action will produce a particular predictable result, but the flavour, the underlying character of the result will be predictable according to the intention from which the action has sprung. There's a story, I, I was talking about this subject, karma, once, in fact, for the first time, 
few years ago, when this was the period when I was living in America, and I first had the, the joy of getting to know me ocean and met made many other dear friends in the uh, Insight Meditation Society while I was working there for two years. And I gave this talk on, on karma. And at the end of it, this woman said, you know, that's what my life is like. And she said, I had this really amazing experience. Once when I was living with a friend, well, not a friend, someone she was just sharing a house with, she decided it was time to move out. They weren't getting on that well. There had been some friction. And all the time she'd been there, she'd really enjoyed this clothes-drying rack that her housemate had had. So when she left, she decided, I'm going to take it with me. I've bought all these things for the house that I'm not getting back. I'm going to take her clothes-drying rack. It's a lovely, nice wooden rack. And she took it. And she found another place to live. And she said that for the next 18 months, she felt guilty, she felt bad, she felt upset, but she couldn't bring herself to go back to that old house and return it. And so she lived in this house with a couple of new housemates. And at some point, one of them left after about 18 months. And they took the clothes rack. (laughs) And she got it. The truth of karma. It's not always that blindingly obvious to us. Sometimes it seems that we act in kind ways, or good ways, and yet the intentions underneath them may not be so apparent to us. There's a story about a man who lived in Jerusalem, and he was a wealthy businessman. And after having spent many years working very hard, and his business was doing all right, but not that well, he thought, perhaps, I could share some of my wealth. I'm doing okay, but not great, but perhaps I could share some of this. I could make a generous donation to the rabbi who is poor and a simple man, of of simple means. So he gave a donation to the rabbi, and his business improved. So he thought, this is nice. But he didn't make any particular connection. He thought, I can give a little more to the rabbi. So he gave some more money to the rabbi, and his business started to boom. And he thought, This is amazing. Maybe these are related. Maybe giving the money to the rabbi means that maybe God is taking a hand in my business affairs. Wonderful. But he's just a rather ordinary rabbi. Maybe if I make a great donation to the the greatest rabbi in Jerusalem, Rabbi Bez Tov Tov Deir, I'll give him this big donation. So he went and took as much as he could get out of his account and he went and gave it to this rabbi thinking... This great rabbi thinking, oh, wow, this is going to be amazing. I can't wait to see what happens. And his business started to crumble. And it went downhill. And he was on the verge of bankruptcy. When he went to see his local village rabbi, the first rabbi, he said, Rabbi, I don't understand what's happening. Can you tell me what's happening? And he told him the story. It's very simple, my son, said the rabbi. So long as you just gave generously and did not care to whom you were giving, God did exactly the same and gave to you. But so long as you started looking for someone very special and well-deserving of what you were giving, well, God did exactly the same. It's really worth paying attention to what moves us in our life. Because what moves us will determine the quality of our life. We can be so interested in the past and the future We think, how will we know the past? We think about it, reflect on it. In terms of karma, it is said that if you want to know the past, look in the present. If you want to know the future, look in the present. 
What does this mean? It means that the experiences you are having now are born of past actions. One way or another, we can't always understand what that means. It certainly doesn't mean we should blame ourselves for the fact that things are difficult, nor that we should be sort of taking some kind of inflated pride in the fact that things are going well. But nonetheless, one way or another, the actions of our life have created the experiences that we find ourselves in. Or if not created them, have coloured and flavoured them in particular ways. And equally, in the actions that we make in the present moment, in how we choose to respond to those experiences which come to us, in this way is our future created. Our future is coloured, is flavoured. The, the quality of sweetness or bitterness is infused into our future by the way that in the present we meet what is happening right now. The quality or the ability of, us, of ours to bring the qualities of non-harming, of non-greed, of non-cruelty into the way we act. To bring kindness, generosity and compassion into our lives. This is what determines the quality of our life. When we start to understand this, we realize it's really worth paying attention to what we're doing. It's not such a good idea to just be running around on autopilot reacting to things. The wisdom of understanding karma is the wisdom that tells us to take care with how we move in this world. Just as we are sensitive beings, this world is a sensitive place. And when we move in this world, we create ripples. And those ripples can carry sweetness. And those ripples can equally carry bitterness into this world and this world simply reflects it back to us. This is how we begin to learn. And in that learning, in that learning which begins with understanding that actions have results and therefore we need to make choices. This is the first perhaps foundation of wisdom. The beginning of finding the ground of wisdom, of how to live well, in a way that we don't cause ourselves suffering by the actions that we engage in. What happens at this point is we start to think, well, I need to stop acting with greed, hatred and um, cruelty in my life. And most of us would actually probably have known this if we'd asked ourselves, what would be a good way to live? We know that. It's not such a surprising thing. It's not that we have to read sort of esoteric Buddhist text in order to find that out. We know that. Any half-decent tradition of spiritual teaching will tell us that, and in fact we don't even need that. Any, any human heart can figure that out quite quickly if it stops and reflects. But it's not that easy. Because what we discover when we seek to have more choices in how we act, to understand the motivations that move us, we realize that actually there's some very powerful forces at work. And for the most part, they're unconscious. For the most part, we don't know what it is that made us do that. We don't know even whether it was actually a wholesome or an unwholesome, a skillful or an unskillful intention, because we weren't actually there at the time. It just happened. And so often, we find ourselves somewhere. And we really don't know how we got there. We've said something, we're thinking, my gosh, what did I say? How did I, how did I come to say that? We've done something. We know we didn't really want to do it, but something in us did because we've done it. How does that happen? How does that happen? 
We need to understand the power of our past, the power of conditioning that affects the present, that affects how we are and how we act in the present moment. And this is the realm of self-knowledge, of <coughs> and a- the aspect of wisdom that is about understanding what moves us, what touches us, where our vulnerabilities are, where our strengths are, where we need to pay particular attention and where we can allow ourselves just to kind of move in a more easeful way because we know that actually we're not weak in that department. In our meditational, we start to become aware of all of this going on. We actually you know, may have come here wishing to have a holiday from having to watch what goes on on the inside. We kind of think, you know, it'll, it'll quiet down after a few days, and maybe it does briefly, but then it usually comes back in a similar or different form. And we see these patterns, these impulses, these tendencies, these reactions, these stories, moving in our being. We find ourselves confronted with them almost in a rather a more stark or direct way than we would have wished. But in that, precisely because we can't escape them in the way we used to, we start to look and see, oh, what is this going on? What's happening in here? We need to understand what it is that pushes our buttons. Because due to situations, conditions, experiences in the past, we have what could be best perhaps understood as buttons. Things that when a certain experience arises for us, we react in a certain way with very little choice and incredibly quickly. So we're lost in it. It's not like we start to feel, oh, there's something going to happen. Oh, maybe it's going to go this way, maybe that way. Um, I think I'll take this choice. It's not like that. It's like, we've acted. Something has happened. And it's not always serving our well-being. So we look to see what's going on. To learn from the story of our life is to listen inwardly to the stories that arise, the feelings and the words that they convey their messages to us with. Not listening to have to believe what they're saying, but to understand the authority that we give them by either believing in them or by believing we must somehow suppress or get rid of them in order to not be ruled by those movements of feeling and thought. To see which ways of behaviour in our own heart which patterns lead to well-being. To see which ways of behaviour and patterns of our lives lead to unhappiness. This is known as discerning wisdom and is regarded as the kindergarten of wisdom, the place from which we begin the process of true learning, of learning to be happy in this world. And what we see as we pay attention and when we find ourselves slowly dissolving the resistance to seeing what's going on in there, because it's not always good news. You know, there's that old line, why is it that self-knowledge is always bad news? It isn't really, it's just the stuff we didn't want to see, which we need to see, is usually bad news. That's why we didn't want to see it in the first place, and it's equally that's why we need to see it. We're all very happy to see the good news. We're happy to get some more self-knowledge about our beautiful qualities and our lovely aspects, although we're not usually a little bit embarrassed to admit to anyone else that that's what we're doing. Sometimes, rather sadly, we're even embarrassed to admit that to ourselves. 
that we have those good qualities and those good actions that have formed part of our lives. But to see, as Myotion was speaking about, getting to know the tapes that our mind plays, the patterns of thinking, and we see that we've probably got, you know, the top ten hits, the ones that just keep coming back, the old favourites. And for some reason, once they start playing, we almost feel like we have to get to the end of them. We want to hear the whole story, and yet at the same time, we want it to turn it. We want to turn it off. And what might they be? Stories of our own failure. Stories of our lack of self-worth. Stories of our broken dreams and our betrayals. All of us have different stories. Each of our stories is unique. No one else has lived the life that you have lived or the life that I have lived. And yet we're alike in that we all have these stories. We share this human experience of feeling how these different stories have a weight in our lives. How they bring pressure to bear upon us as we seek to avoid the consequences or the experience that they give rise to when they are present. The difficult, the painful stories, we don't want to have to feel them. And we so often find ourselves acting in ways so as to avoid the story arising. Such as perhaps we feel that if we're criticised we end up getting into judgement and blaming of ourselves and being really hard on ourselves. It can be so painful. And then we start to live our life terrified that we'll do something that someone else will criticise. And not that they'll even actually criticise us, but they might just even have a thought that's critical of us. And you know, we can become prisoners to our own ideas, our own imagination of what someone else is thinking about us. We have no idea what they're thinking about us. You know, we're walking and we lose our balance and sort of stumble to the left. And it's obvious to everyone that we really weren't very mindful at all, it seems. And we're sort of mortified. And and everyone must be looking at us and thinking, oh, what a klutz, you know? That person, you know, five days of meditation, you know, they might as well go home now. (laughs) You know? And we believe that this is what everyone else is thinking. No one else has noticed. No one else has noticed. But it's like this incredible weight comes to bear upon us because we somehow are terrified that people will have a thought. They're probably going to have thoughts. But if you've noticed your own thoughts, theirs are probably similar and they're more worried about themselves. And of course, yeah, thoughts about others as well. But to see how we give a pattern so much power is the beginning of starting to empower ourselves in relationship to it. That's not the same as making it go away, but about beginning to see through it. And in meditation we start to see some of those patterns. We start to see them. But sometimes we see them and yet we're still in their grip. And this is almost one of the most painful places we can be. You know, the old, you know, it's not really wisdom, but it sounds like it. Ignorance is bliss. Now, in a sense that's true because starting to see the bad news seems worse than ignorance. It seems worse because we actually start to come into relationship with the difficulty that that bad news presents. Whatever it might be, the patterning or the actions or the past, whatever. 
And yet there is often a place where although we can see it, we haven't yet understood it well enough to free ourselves from it. And this really asks a great degree of patience from us. A willingness to just be there, to not feel we have to do anything with it. And yet just to trust that in having come to see it and to feel it, that that very process is transformative in itself. That awareness in itself is transforming. We don't have to do anything with it. Except keep interested and trust the unfoldment. There's a beautiful story, um, or poem in fact, by Portia Nelson, which uh, expresses this, and it refers to walking on the uh, part of the side of a road which is designed for pedestrians, which in the poem is referred to as the uh, sidewalk. She's a a North American author, and uh, when I tell it elsewhere, I sometimes think I should call it the pavement here in England, and if I was at home in New Zealand, I should really say the the footpath, because there are all these different words. Sometimes I get confused about exactly which one it should be. Anyway, enough of the introduction. The, uh, the poem is called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. And this is slightly, as I remember it anyway, not word perfect. Um, chapter one. I walk down the street. There is a large hole in the pavement. I don't see it. I don't know it is there. I fall in. I don't know what has happened or where I am. It's not my fault, and it takes me a long time to get out. Chapter 2 I walk down the same street. There is a large hole in the pavement. I pretend I don't see it, and fall in again. I still don't know where I am or what has happened, and it's not my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3 I walk down the same street. There is a large hole in the pavement. I see it is there. I know it is there. I fall in anyway. It's a habit. (laughs) I know exactly where I am. I know just what has happened. It is my fault. And I get out straight away. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a large hole in the pavement. I carefully walk around it. In chapter 5, I walk down a different street. This is the process of learning that unfolds as our our exploration of self-knowledge deepens, as we start to recognize the places where we fall in, as we begin to see them, as we start to understand what it needs, what it asks from us, and often it does ask something from us to let go or to face something that's not easy in order to be able to walk around and eventually to, in fact, find another way, another path, where we don't have to be constantly on, sort of walking on eggshells in case we fall in a hole. And in this, we start to see that we can learn to live well amidst the conditioning that we are born into through our history, through our past, that we find ourselves born into this moment with. That conditioning is there. For most of us, it will continue to show itself throughout the rest of our life in different ways and forms. But it doesn't need to have power over us. It doesn't need to cause suffering to us or to others. And we're not here, important and significant as that is, and are very much a part of our meditation practice. That is not all that we are concerned with. 
it can be that we become preoccupied with this thinking that we've got to sort it all out we've got to fix it we've got to get it straight and comfortable and tidy and, and you know have the perfectly flat road or pavement so to speak or we could equally understand it as kind of trying to redecorate our inner world redecorate the living room of our psyche and sometimes it goes beyond redecoration we're going to renovate it you know we want to knock a few walls out and all that and yet for all of that we're still in the same room there's a way in which there's something limited about seeing that as all there is to life and that although we can renovate or redecorate if we believe that that's all there is to our life it becomes the prison cell in which we are bound in which our, or by which our freedom is limited to understand our inner life to understand the patterns and the conditions that arise that move through us that move through our life our individual patterns and the universality of all of life of all of us having these patterns and how they interact to dissolve the power that they have through wisdom, through understanding, through kindness and gentleness in working with them and working with ourselves we start to lose our preoccupation and our fascination with this realm of the inner life which seems so important and which has its importance but ultimately is not the most important thing as we start to find more ease with the inner life as we've learned some of those lessons so inevitably there are always more but as we start to learn perhaps the larger lessons we find that we don't need to spend so much of our time looking in that particular direction it's almost like looking where we're putting our feet and the metaphor of walking of course we need to look where we're putting our feet so we don't fall into any holes but once we've actually got to know the road and know where the holes are we don't need to spend so much time focused in that way and actually our gaze starts to look up somewhat we start to see more directly into the nature of all experience suffering the experience of unsatisfactoriness in life is born of not seeing truly not seeing deeply and clearly the nature of our experience the family to understand what is really going on is the basis of our failure to be able to live in harmony with what is going on and we have the tendency to rather quickly believe appearances to believe first impressions without seeking to look further without seeking to look more deeply and when we believe appearances we find ourselves living in a world of misunderstanding of misperception of suffering born of misunderstanding and misperception and yet what we perceive seems at times so real to us so compelling meditation asks us to look more deeply a couple of years ago in uh, February I was meditating in the early morning so this is in the, the winter and uh, just uh, finishing my, my practice for the morning opened my eyes to look out through the window and at the time I was uh, staying in the uh, in, in, in one of the wings of Sharpham House a, a lovely uh, 
mansion on an estate about 10 miles from here near Totnes where a lot of uh, wonderful things go on including the Barn Retreat Community and uh, the Sharpham College for Buddhist Studies and Inquiry and other activities but I was living there at the time independent from those institutions but I, I just looked out through the window as I opened my eyes at the end of the sitting and on the windowsill there was a snail beautiful little creature and I could just see it. It's, it's, you know, the beautiful sort of markings on that sort of spiral shell and the, the tender, soft, translucent body just moving and the, the little sort of upright head and on the head those two little storks with beady little eyes. And I just sort of, just my heart was really just touched by this little creature. And the first thought was, well, gosh, what's it doing in here? And I, I thought, well, I, I realized quite quickly that in fact it was in here because the window was open. Why was the window open when it was really, really cold? because the window had been jammed shut, that had been sort of sticking, so you couldn't close it. And I'd taken a plane and trimmed off some pieces of wood so that it would close, and I'd painted it, but I couldn't close it until the paint dried. So I left it open, and the snail came in. You know, well, thought moves quickly, just took but a few seconds. You've noticed thought moves quickly, I take it. Um, and I thought, gosh, what's it coming here for? There's nothing for it to eat but it's probably come in here because it's too cold outside and it will die if it stays out there. So, oh gosh, what's going to happen? It's going to starve if it stays in here. It's going to freeze to death if I put it back outside. And all this compassion and concern and the dilemma, what will I do for this creature? And then I had this idea. I thought, I know what. I'll take it and put it in the greenhouse that belongs to the Sharpham College. <laughs> it's full of lovely things for it to eat and it's nice and warm. And I'm sure they were, it's actually one of the students, uh, one of the ex-students here, I see. Fortunately, this was in an earlier year. Um, <laughs> and I thought, great, I've solved the problem. So I got up from my sitting posture and reached out towards the snail, which turned out to be a wood shaving. <laughs> a wood shaving. And I'd seen its little eyes on stalks. I'd felt for its little existence. I'd solved its problems. It was a wood shaving. <laughs> Sometimes much of how we act in this world isn't so different than that. In the Dharma teachings, uh, what is spoken of is three fundamental areas where we misperceive what is going on, where we fail to actually understand what's in front of us because of looking only at the surface impression of not seeing deeply and clearly what is actually going on. Meditation asks us to be present in order to develop wisdom, to recognize the truth, to reverse those misperceptions and in that end the suffering that is born of them. And the first misperception, which we've spoken somewhat about already, is the perception that things are permanent, that they last, that they stay the same. You know, at some level it's obvious to all of us, isn't it, things change. And yet how fully do we live our life as though that is true? How often are we fooled into believing that things will be the same? And I had a wonderful experience of this in um, June. I was coming uh, to teach a retreat here with uh, Christina Feldman, one of the uh, guiding teachers and uh, a good friend and a uh, dear teacher of my own. And uh, we'd had some really incredibly hot weather for the past two or three days before the retreat was beginning. 
and it was so hot and I was thinking wow it's going to be really hot this week and so I thought what should I bring and I, I packed my bags and I came to the retreat and I was a bit concerned because I didn't really have that many warm clothes uh, clothes for warm weather that are tidy you know this is England and one doesn't I find um, <laughs> have that much need for lightweight clothing for warm weather <laughs> can I say it more politely um, and I came here and I was really concerned I'm going to run out of lightweight shirts I've only got a couple you know it's a whole week of retreat and on day four, when the weather turned really cold and miserable, I sat there thinking, you know, I really believed it was going to be sunny all week. I didn't bring a jumper. And this is England. Something in me had completely swallowed the idea that it was going to be warm and sunny for a whole week. And it was remarkable. Because, you know, I spent half my life telling other people things change. And yet at some level it hadn't sunk in, in that moment, in that situation. And because of that, we tend to hold on to experience. We tend to believe it will stay or that we can make it stay. We tend to push it away. And when we do that, because life is in motion, life is of the nature to move, when we try and grab hold of that which is in motion, we experience rope burn. It's though we're trying to hold something that is pulling through our hands with more strength than we have to hold it. And as it does, the very friction of our resistance to its movement is what we experience as suffering. When we don't understand that things change, we are burnt by that change because we seek to resist it. We lose our fluidity and our ability to move with the motion of life, to flow with its changing nature. And equally, we sometimes believe, we find ourselves believing again and again in the hope beyond all hope, that somehow we're going to find some thing, some person, some place, some situation or circumstance, some outer conditions or some inner experience that's going to do it for me, that's going to finally make us happy, make us free, make us whatever. We keep hoping that we're going to find that something. And yet, we have not understood. We're continuing to live, even though, as we've said already, everything we've ever run into in our life has failed to do it for us that somehow the next thing or another thing is going to. Living in the misperception that things can bring us lasting happiness. Of course they can bring us joy and happiness for a time, but never forever. No one thing can do that for us. And as we start to understand that nothing can do it for us, we maybe then start to live in accordance with that not giving so much importance to things that are outside of our control, that are inherently unable to bring us lasting satisfaction. Enjoying them while they're there, but not giving them too much weight. Learning to let go, learning to let be. This is an action born of wisdom that is in fact an action and an expression of compassion for ourselves. Not something we should do because it's good or right or Buddhists tell us to, but because it actually serves our well-being. This is the function of wisdom. It makes us clear what that is, that we need to do the way to be in this world that serves our well-being. And the third area in which we get ourselves entangled with misunderstanding, with misperception, is the way in which we experience a sense of who we are as somehow 
the owner of our experience, as somehow that there is someone sitting in here somewhere to whom all this is happening, or to, of whom all things around us are somehow the possessions that we own, or that we are the owner of in some way, that refer back to ourselves, to me. And yet, in fact, this is not so. This is not so. But you sit there saying, what do you mean? Our mind sits there saying, what are you talking about? I'm over here, you're over there. Who are you kidding? The appearance is obviously so, that we are individual separate beings. This body's over here. If I poke something, I'm poking it with my finger under the blanket, you don't necessarily feel that. Obviously we're different. Yes, that's not to be contradicted. And yet, there's something deeper about the nature of what it means to be in this existence, experiencing body and mind process, that we need to understand, that reveals to us something rather significant about how we could live in this world. So we have this idea, you know, well, this is me. I'm here, sitting here. In your case, perhaps listening, hopefully, from my point of view, in my case, talking hopefully making sense, again, from my point of view. And we do notice how the things we say and think about tend to refer to our own point of view. It's rather a feature. It's like me in here, having these views of the world out there. And this reinforces the sense of being separate, of being an individual. But what is it that actually is here? If we look, we see that this is a process that unfolds, dependent upon particular conditions. What you experience as yourself right now is probably quite different than what you've experienced as yourself at other times in the retreat. Now sitting here thinking the talk's rather boring. Well, maybe a little while earlier you were thinking something else. And yet one can experience oneself quite differently in different moments. So to look at this, to explore it, what is going on here? I remember when I studied um, psychology, I did a paper in psychology at university, the uh, lecturer suggested we consider you know, whether if we stick our head out the window we're inside the room or outside it. Most of us thought we were still in the room. He said, okay, stick your torso out as well. Are you in the room? And, well, I'm not quite sure now if we're in the room. And he said, okay, get one of your legs outside the room, one inside. It'd be a bit hard in here because the windows are a bit high. But um, are you outside the room? And we all thought, yeah, we're outside the room by now. And he said, okay, at what point did you leave the room? At which point, when how much of your body got out the room had you left? It's kind of like, when we actually start to think about it, which bit of this body is me? You know, if I cut my fingernails off, have I lost a bit of me? Probably, if we're reflecting on this a bit, we start to say, actually, no, this isn't actually me. It's maybe it's mine, it's my body, but it's not really me. Maybe I own it. Although when bits fall off it, I don't particularly want to own it anymore. You know, they kind of tend to be a bit less, um, well, a bit less keen on them once they've fallen off, um, or fallen out, which is even worse. <laughs> So what is it that's actually going on here that we call me? We don't have to believe someone else's idea about whether this is or isn't someone, whether there's any ownership here or any fixed and permanent entity in here to which it all refers. What's happening? Ask your own experience. Look for yourself. And if you do, what you're quite likely going to find is that basically there's this process of sight, of sense impressions. Sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, 
Was that all of them? The sounds. That's what's going on. As well as that, they're being known in the mind, which is also aware of thoughts and emotions, which are a kind of constellation of different pieces, as we were talking earlier. And we see that they're coming and going. They're arising and changing. Have you, had, have you managed to have a sitting in which your mind stayed pretty much the same? Or your body stayed pretty much the same? No. It's changing, it's changing, it's changing. We see that fact in our experience. And not only is it changing, but it's not in our control. It's changing in ways that we don't often like. It's not what we choose. It's just happening. And does it really make sense? The Buddha suggested you ask yourself this question. Does it really make sense to consider something which is changing, something which is not in your control, to be who you are? To be your own possession? Surely, if we own it, the, distinct, the distinguishing mark about owning something is that you can do what you like with it. That's what ownership's all about. I own a house that means I can paint it or I can knock it down or I can give it away. Someone else owns a house, I can't do that with it. Well, if I do, I get into trouble. In fact, actually, that's a good metaphor for what happens. Um, we try and do something with something we don't own and we get into trouble. Because we're constantly trying to work on this thing, you know, trying to fix it, trying to sort it out and all that, believing that it's who we are or that we own it. And yet maybe that isn't true. Where is the body that you had 10 years ago, 20 years ago, as a child? Where is it? Now, have you got it in the wardrobe somewhere? Have you kept it somewhere? No, it's gone. Gone. Where are the thoughts, the feelings, the experiences you've had in your life? Hundreds, thousands, millions of them you've had. Where are they now? Can you find a single one beyond just the memory that remembers them, which is just an experience right now? The memory isn't in the past. It is of the past, but it's happening right now. All that we were is gone. We can't find it anywhere. And equally of the future. What could you say? Where is it? Where is the body you are going to have? Do you think it's waiting around at your next arrival place for you to get into? Is it sitting there, you know? All the thoughts, all the feelings, they're somewhere stacked up, sort of in a line, like a row of dominoes falling into your brain one at a time. No, they're not there. So long as we believe that all this is mine, all this refers to me, as our possession, as our responsibility, we find ourselves incredibly burdened by it. It's not to deny that we, there's some existence going on here. It's not like sitting, you know, well, I'm not really here, I guess. That's what he told me, so, well, you know, not much to do then. I'll just sort of fade into the cushion, you know. Someone will probably take my blanket when they notice I'm not using it, you know. It's not that we're denying the reality of our existence, but seeking to understand what is really the reality of our existence. And look at what is the effect of living our life in that way. If we live our life based on the idea that all this is about me and that there's someone in here who's got to get things and avoid things and sort it all out, what is life like? There's a story told in India of a man who goes on a long train journey. And walking to the station as he does, as people do in India, carrying his very large and heavy suitcase on his head, gets on the train. The train takes off on his long journey in India. Uh, train services leave something to be desired in, their, in terms of speed and efficiency, although they do move about a million people every day. It's quite impressive. But in this particular story, um, a man gets on the train for a long journey, you know, 
One could travel for two, three days, four days on the train. And he keeps the suitcase on his head. And one would look at him and think, it's a bit strange. Does he not understand that if you put him down, put it down, it'll come along? That he doesn't need to carry it anymore? The way we have of taking a very personal responsibility for everything that's happening within us and around us, feeling like it's happening to me, it sort of like creates a sense of weight. That somehow like we have to carry this thing, we have to do it, I've got to get it right, I've got to fix it, it's gone horribly wrong and I don't know how to do it, help! All that is born of the sense of identifying with what's happening, that it's happening to me. Now, it's not happening to someone else. It's important to get that. It's not like we're not suggesting sort of a, a doctrine of um, schizophrenia. But that sense of what it means that it's happening to me isn't quite true either. We find that we take credit for things that go well. We find we feel to take the blame for things that have gone wrong. And how much suffering that causes us how much conflict that gets us into. We find that the sense of ourself to whom it all refers is what's behind that sense of wanting or that fear, that craving or that anger. It's not just wanting something, it's I want it, it's me that wants it, it's me that needs it, give it to me, please. That's wanting, give it to me, or I'll hit you, that's anger. Or it's me that's angry. Just how strong that sense of self is when we're caught in difficult, afflictive patterns or emotions or reactions. We feel our sense of self very strong when we're threatened or when there's something that we want. It becomes really substantial. It's a little bit like that wonderful story Mion told the other day about the, the, the aircraft carrier saying, you know, it's sort of getting puffing itself up. The story of, you know, I'm really this very, very big thing that's really important, give me what I want. And yet what happens when it does that is if it doesn't realise what's going on, it's going to run into something that's rather larger than itself, which is life. And we find ourselves running into life when we puff ourselves up in that way, taking hold, identifying with what's going on. On the retreat we can see how this attempt to gratify our desires to avoid our fears just becomes more and more and more. It's like we start to find things that are less and less significant becoming more and more important. You know, things that really wouldn't bother us in our life. You know, the fact that someone's, um, you know, got one of their socks inside out. You know, really, not a major issue, but we've seen it. And really, they can't be very mindful. And it's really a problem, actually, because it's really disturbing my meditation now. And in fact, I think I can't even do walking meditation in the same room as them. And this whole, you know, it's because we see the process of selfing, as it's been described, of self getting entangled with it. Because it's all me and my, what I want, what I don't like, that goes on. The more we get entangled, the more we try to do it, the more we suffer. There is no owner of our experience that we can find. Look and see, what do you find? We find thoughts and feelings. And they tend to be the most sort of intimate bit that we feel it's really me, those thoughts. It's really me, those feelings. All the other bits sort of, it's a bit more peripheral. I can cope without, you know, I cut my fingernails off and, you know, I don't feel like I've got a loss of self-identity when I do it. Um, But these things really feel like me. And yet, what's in there that owns them? Except the thought that pops up saying, it's me. 
And that's just another thought. What about the thought that pops up saying, well, is it me? What does that one do? What does that one do to us? There's nothing lasting that's going on in here. It keeps changing. And yet what we can see is a pattern. And the pattern I find, I kind of describe it a little bit like if you could imagine going to the circus and seeing someone coming and doing this wonderful, amazing, skilled action, like maybe the flying trapeze and these acrobats, beauty and grace and courage and skill. And then after the action has happened, out comes the clown. And the clown's sort of trying to let you all know that it was me up there doing that. Yeah, I did that. I'm really cool, aren't I? You know, it's great. I was flying through the air. And you're all sitting there chuckling, going, of course we know it wasn't that clown. And he goes a bit like that. It pops up after the event saying, it was me, it was me. I did it. I'm doing great. Or it was me. It was me that really messed up badly that time. It's, again, as though we're, as though we're sort of, um, we've got the sense that I'm doing it. I'm running this life. I'm in charge here. You know, despite the fact that it doesn't seem to be quite running the way we think it should do, despite all our best efforts. And it's as though we're, we're piloting a ship on the high seas and the waves and the winds and the storms there, and we sort of see a wave coming and we steer this way and we're sort of going along and there's a wind coming so we steer this way and then we're sort of be calm so we don't bother holding the steering wheel for, all, and, you know, the, the wheel for a while. And then at some point we realise that the wheel wasn't attached to the rudder and all of it was just going on and we didn't do that but we thought we were. And we could have actually gone and had a nap. When we see that we're not doing it, when we see that we're not doing this meditation, we can't make it happen. You got frustrated? You've been struggling with your meditation? Ask yourself why. Because I, self, is trying to do it. And it's not happening the way self wants it to. Let go of that. Meditation is not for yourself. It is not even ultimately about yourself. And it is certainly not of yourself. It is of life. And life unfolds itself without that much need from us to direct and control it. We are asked to be there and trust that life will respond when we do. Of course we do need to make choices, as I spoke earlier, to recognize the wisdom in a situation, to be conscious, to seek to cultivate and to manifest intentions born of, of kindness, of generosity, of, of compassion. And yet how that process happens is very organic. We can't make it happen any more than we can force a seed to grow. But seeds grow, it is of their nature to grow. And in seeing that we are not the owner of all of this, we're no longer compelled to act on our fears or act on our aversion. We can see it that they have no power in them by themselves except that we try to own them. Except that we say, I want, I fear. Apart from that, it's simply wanting. It's simply fear. Nisargadatta Maharaj, a great Indian saint, he once said, freedom from desire is not the absence of desire arising, but the absence of any need to satisfy it. This is freedom from desire. So don't feel that the arising of desire is the problem. It's our compulsion to satisfy it that we actually need to understand. And 
the inner strength that we cultivate through meditation that is different than the strength of armor that imprisons us the inner strength that we cultivate is in fact the sense of not needing to satisfy the movement of desires and fears not needing to act on them realizing that we have no choice or control over their arising but we can learn to not feed them and in not feeding them their power is diminished there's a story of a Sufi master who was a great teacher and much loved by his students and he would speak about simplicity and living without too much wanting or need and yet every day he would go down to the market and wander amongst the stores and look at all the amazing things there he would come back so happy and joyful and one day his students said master master you tell us to live simply without all these material things and yet every day you go down to the market and spend your time amongst all these worldly things why is it you do this and the master replied he said you know I find great joy in looking upon all the things that I am happy without to find our joy in that capacity to find joy in freedom from desire where we understand that we do not need to satisfy because it is not who we are it is not who we are that we don't need to define ourselves by our inner experience by the thoughts and feelings that arise that flow through us and to see in that not identifying with that story not believing it to be who we are or what we are or to be even the most important thing in our life when we're not so interested in that in building it up and fixing it and changing it and destroying it or sort of improving it whatever it might be we actually start to understand what freedom might actually be freedom is born of recognizing that we are not limited by that which we experience that we are not defined by what is moving through us to see that we are not bound in that way is to see that there are no boundaries in life that life is not bounded except by the way we view it as being such and it is only our view and our misperception that in taking this individual to be separate we find ourselves cut off and bound apart from the world in seeing that there are no boundaries we come to understand we come to be touched by the quality of being that is unbound by the quality of life that is unbounded so can we sit please for a minute or two
may all beings deepen in self-knowledge. May all beings understand the ground of wisdom. May all beings realize the freedom that is unbound. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.